Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things Exes for Podcast, check out Exes for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you can catch me on social media at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And I'm TK. You can find me at X Nate X Gray X. And that, of course, makes this our continuing investigation into the many worlds, children, and other ideas of alternate universe spider people in this great grand old thing we used to call MC2 2.5 Spider Verse, Spider Top, Spider Bottom, Spider No Anal. This has been one of the most exciting things. Things I've ever done with comic books. I really feel like not only do I know you better, TK, and these characters better, but like I kind of feel like I understand what makes me a comic fan a little bit more in depth. I think that is one of the biggest takeaways. I feel like I've learned a lot about publishing and a lot about the worlds that come up that are not the main Marvel universe and how they contribute. But really, you know, it's the friends we made along the way. It's the stuff I learned about myself. I really feel feel like this taught me to engage with the stories that I have sort of taken for granted for the last 30 years that I've been a comic book reader. This has made me read things so much differently, just this investigation and trying to understand the why of so many things that I often think are very cool, but very silly and really engender the question why. And it's been in that regard that we've been looking at such a weird, broad scope of the X, not even X, you know, the spider universe. That's what's so funny because, like, you know, we started as an X-Men podcast and we became like a modern X-Men podcast and then we threw in a whole bunch of other stuff. And now we're doing this crazy live thing that we love so much. And it's so exciting. And throughout the course of MC2's XI4PAU world, we've covered every world of MC2. We've covered everything about just about every spider kid and we've even gone as far as to take a look at like spider-verse spider-geddon every word you can affix spider to is a prefix that has never functioned as a suffix in the entire history of etymology and in this case not quite entomology because spiders aren't insects but it's close enough to get the, the wordplay you know what i mean we are staring into the void that is what if they tried mayday again and still couldn't get it right but really through no fault of the creative team who does a bang up job we're here to continue taking a look at renew your vows we're going to be taking a look at the jody hauser years or months as it were with issues 13 to 23 really burns that they didn't get a 24 everything gets six issues what the fuck is this a mini series we're also going to be taking a look at the jed mckay ryan north taryn kill him i don't care he is my husband i love him so much and christos gauge spider-verse volume from 2019 and 2020 spider-verse volume three within a number of unbelievable 
unbelievable artist. Teak, we're here. This is the end of Renew Your Vows. This is yet another Spider-Verse. We are in a very interesting place because the other thing that has changed between when we started our Renew Your Vows coverage and when we are picking it up is we have started to get the first of the Mayday Infinity comics that we were so excited about. And I'm really excited about the creative team. Uh, Steph Williams is writing it, and I think she is a really uh, fantastic choice to be writing Mayday. Another woman writing another spider daughter makes me incredibly happy. I just feel like probably in a way that I will be happy about once we wrap this all up and set it aside for a while, but right now it's kind of daunting. I feel like I am we're going to end up ending this piece of coverage and this part of the, you know, world that we have been going at for you know, when all is said and done, it'll be about a year, um, with less closure than maybe I was expecting. And I believe that I'll feel positively about that because it means that there's more stories to come that I can see more ways in which these worlds can continue. Um, but when I get into the thick of some of these stories, and especially the Annie stuff that we are covering today, Annie as a bit more of a uh, independent teenager, I find myself now I've got two spider daughters that I'm worried about and need to see good things for in the Marvel multiverse. And I don't think I will end this getting everything I want for those girls yet. It goes so deep because one of the things that I really appreciate that you are pointing out is the necessary value of a woman putting her touch on a woman character. The idea that for so many years we saw Mayday, you know, in our compressed time dilation, the vault Serafina kind of years, that we saw so many men have their input on this female character after seeing so many men have their input on so many male characters. We don't really see a wealth of female male creators working on male characters. We don't really get to say, I can't wait for Steph Williams to work on Miles and Leah Williams to work on Spider-Man India. Like, we don't get to say, won't it be cool when this woman works on this male character in terms of, like, the enculturation? We say it, but, you know, this isn't really the giant step I'd kind of hoped it would be, because shortly after Jodie Hauser writes Amazing Spider-Man, Renew Your Vow, for nine issues, making her the writer of the ongoing era who kind of served the least time. Admittedly, of course, Ryan Stegman only properly did four issues, but as a co-creator, he definitely had 12 under his belt. Again, I'm very bitter that this run only runs nine issues, three different pencilers in that time. And I can't help but notice that there isn't a single female major creative force on Spider-Verse Volume 3. I can't help but notice it's 25 issues of Spider-Verse in comic before there is a female writer. I can't help but notice that when we get to Spider-Gwen Spider-Verse a bit later on, it's written by a man with art by a woman. And admittedly, I love that it's a young woman. When we get to it, Jody Nishijima, who does the pencils and inks on Spider-Gwen's Gwenverse, is a very young woman. She's actually 22 now. So when she did this book, she was like 19. That's cool. But this is not the demarcation for things are going to get better for women in the Spider-Verse that we've been hoping for. No. And one of the things I realized when I started 
getting into the Jed McKay Spider-Verse book is, and it's, you know, it's something that came out of the coverage that we were doing over the past couple weeks in our live segments, which a lot of, we've done a bunch of Jed McKay books there, but I mean this in a very positive way. Jed McKay represents kind of the new generation and new version of the Marvel company man that used to be guys like Tom DeFalco, you know, kind of still is guys like Tom DeFalco because you, you never really get out of the Marvel business, I don't think. But it's different guys now, the ones that are really in there making the big universe changes and doing a lot of the heavy writing lifting are guys like Jed McKay. And I use guys both kind of broadly a term for people, but also like it's still pretty much entirely men. And the women that we recognize their names as writers, I can't really think of any one of them that I would say is, you know, showing up with the regularity of somebody like Jed McKay and with the amount of story input. I think there are editorial names and art direction and creative names behind the scenes and production publishing names that are women's names that are very important to the shepherding process and their contributions might be, you know, in some ways even greater and more important, but they are not as front facing. And we seem to still really be saving those front facing roles in creative for men. You know, I just, I want to believe that we're really just at kind of, you know, no longer does it need to be like, well, you know, over time, more women will show up and then they'll start to be in the club too. I think we're kind of at a like, let's just break the glass. Let's rip off the bandaid moment. And I really would like to see some women step into that role where, you know, you're seeing them get a whole line. You're seeing them get the whole summer crossover. You're seeing them being the driving creative input behind a story. And I would most especially like to see that happen more for woman characters and, you know, teenage girl characters that I just, I don't think we can really keep saying like, well, you know, at least the girls are in the books. And that's been kind of the stick of it forever, hasn't it? We've had gay characters, but they never get to really be gay on page. We get women characters, but they're women by having women parts and women roles, not by being women with women's thoughts. Because, you know, a woman isn't defined by her physical outward gender elements. She's defined by what she identifies as, by her role in this world, by how she interacts with the universe around her. And to simply say that, oh, no, I'm making the character a woman, so it's female. Ah, you can kind of fuck yourself with that. There is really something to be said about the experience of a person who identifies as female getting to have that stake. And until the Spider-Verse really gives women the effort it's given men, I just feel like we're going to keep coming up a little bit short. And, you know, this should be our time to sing Jody Hauser's praises and, you know, simultaneously to sing, funny enough, Jody Nishijima's praises when we get to that title. But it can't all be saying great job for the little victories some of it is calling for the greater victories still yet ahead and I think it's time the Spider-Verse which has made bank on the bodies of female characters do something to respect the minds of female readers and creators and you know also part of that is with a writer like again I'm just using Jed McKay as an example because he's part of the coverage today and he does kind of represent this template that I'm going for I don't think a ton of the stuff that he writes is amazing I don't think it's hit after 
Hefner hit in terms of quality. And the fact of the matter is he gets so many tries that I see a lot of really good stuff from him, but that's on balance relative to I what are, I think are more misses than hits, and I think that is common for a an active comic book writer's career. That's how it's supposed to be. That is the nature of the serial format. You know, for all that we love the Claremont run and conception, a lot of those X Men issues are really not hits. It is the broad strokes over the run and some individual issues that we remember, and that is the case with anybody that has a large body of serial comics work. The problem is when we have female creatives and writers that get a bunch of chances, but not really a ton of chances, if they have a run that isn't great for any reason, you know, and a lot of those reasons are not their fault. They are, it's not their best work. It's not their best subject matter. It's not the best time in their lives. And they write something that, you know, you might say it's good, but it's not great. We don't get as many opportunities for them to come back and just write something else. And then they knock that one out of the park. It's this few and far between thing where if it isn't really awesome, then that's kind of how they're remembered for a while. And I will say, I don't think that these two issues of, or these two volumes of Renew Your Bows are amazing. They don't knock me off my socks. I really do come to love Annie and want great things for her. And kind of what that means is I want like a Jody Hauser run that is 24 issues long. And at that time, I think, you know, she might have a better chance of having that moment that she just doesn't get because the time is really limited. You know, when we're thinking about limited time, it becomes really difficult not to consider that this whole project started with Spider-Girl and she ran a hundred issues and an annual and a zero and a one half. That's 103. Okay. Then she ran 30, 133. Then she ran another 11 and another four, 137, 148. She got the end. That's 149. Let's say Spider-Girl got an even 150, right? Let's just call it 150 and be happy. There's a real testament to the fact that Spider-Girl got 150 issues and you know even if there are ways in which I think Spider-Ling isn't really the star of her own book I think Spider-Man and Spinneret definitely which I cannot believe isn't just a category on Pornhub is really a they really are co-stars in a way that takes a good portion of the book away from Spider-Ling as the main character but there really is an argument to be made about the effectiveness of the transformative era that is Spider-Girl to Spider-Lane. I think in some ways, when we take a look at Spider-Girl and her 150 issues of just Spider-Girl and her 215 issues of the complete MC2 universe and the 300 issues all said and done, well, now she's hard to use. How do you use her now? She has 200 issues. And like we said, the new stuff coming out now by Steph Williams is on Spider-Man Unlimited, which is meant to be kind of like a, these could go anytime. Not that they are purposefully necessarily canonless, but there is an energy that is a little bit we don't worry so much about putting these between exact issue numbers they're like timeless portraits Yes. Have we reached a point where because Mayday had 250 issues to figure herself out, she is now harder to use and Annie, by virtue of only having 30 issues for someone to read, is suddenly a much more accessible character? It's a really fair question. And another person who is a new generation company man, Dan Slott, is the person that created Annie. And it just becomes a thing where if you are 
are in the mix at Marvel, you kind of, you know, maybe you know Dan Slott, and he, he says, oh, I worked on this book, and then you're like, oh, I'm interested in that character, I'll give it a try, where, you know, Tom DeFalco isn't going around saying, like, you could pick up Mayday if you wanted, it sort of, you have to hope you get somebody who is nostalgic, or somebody who's like, I'm a Grant Morrison type, and I've got a wild fucking idea to completely change what you always thought about Mayday. It's possible, it happens all the time, but I, I think it becomes less and less likely as time goes on. And we sort of see that with the sales, to be honest. I think even though we're making the case for how Annie is more accessible, unfortunately, Annie does suffer the same fate as our precious Mayday very quickly with a significant tumble. I know we discussed this marginally last episode, but just to brush back over it, the only issue of Jody Hauser's pretty wonderful run of Renew Your Vows 13 to 23, which enters the top 100, is issue 13, her debut from November of 2017, selling just under 62,000 copies. After that, she never beats 21,000 copies again, ending somewhere around 15,000 copies. Now, whereas one issue of the Jody Hauser era was in the top 100, only one issue, issue 9, of the original 12 were out of the top 100, so it's kind of a kind of a rough realization. These issues are all written by Jody Hauser, with the first three having Pencils and Inks by Nick Roche, then issues 16 to 18 have pencils and inks by Nathan Stockman, who would go on to be the artist on the current Spider-Girl run. And the final five are pencils and inks by Scott Koblish, with all colors and letters by Ruth Redmond and Joe Caramagna, respectively. This is just kind of a sad story that, you know, her second issue sold one-third of her first issue. Just seems unfair. It is the fate of these characters. It is the fate of these people that are tangential to Peter Parker and Thankfully, you know, now to Miles Morales, everybody wants to see what they're looking at and then they judge pretty harshly and the die off is big, but the core is really strong. And I'm just curious, the data repeats over and over again. And I just want to know, like, what can we do with this? Well, we can learn something from it and hope for the best because I was shocked when I saw the numbers on our next project. To take a look at Spider-Verse Volume 3, 1 through 6, which began in October of 2019. So Renew Your Vows ends September of 2018 with Spider-Verse Volume 3 picking up in October of 2019, running through March of 2020. That's six issues, ran monthly. The first by Jed McKay with art by, and it gets a little crazy, but... Juan Frigeri, Stacey Lee, Arthur Adams, Jason Harron, Dyke Ruan, Sheldon Vela, Carlos Lopez, Frederico Bleed, Dave Stewart, and Letters by Joe Sabino is the only one to have quite so many creators. From there, we get onto a pretty normal beat of Issue 2 by Ryan North, Pere Perez, Jordi Targana Garcia, and Marte Gracia, along with Letters by Joe Sabino, who does the letters on the whole title. December saw Jed McKay, Deke Ruan, and Ian Herring. Four in January saw Cutest Guy in Comedy, Taryn Killam, Juan Gideon, and Brian Reber. Before issue five, saw Christos Gage, like team legend, guy we love so much just for being cool and kind of cute, alongside Juan Ferreira, who does all of the art on the fifth issue. Lastly, Jed McKay returns for the finale with Jose Carlos Silva and Chris Sotomayor. What's scary is the numbers on this are basically the numbers on Renew Your Vows. Seriously. I mean, yeah, it's... <sighs> 
the I guess that sort of collapsed back at my idea that you know maybe it's not the same for for Miles. I guess in a lot of ways it is. Maybe it is that it is not really a Miles solo adventure in six one six. That surprises me just because of the um, it's short, it's sweet, and it gets you some really solid Spider People stories. There's just got to be a different way to go about this particular subset of publishing Marvel comics, like the Spider-Verse stuff that we know everybody's interested in the first issue and people fall in like a a small niche falls in love with each spider person. I really want to jump on why I think this happened because your confusion echoes my certainty. When Spider-Verse began, they said, hold on to your fucking webbing because we're going crazy places we've never been. Spider-Man is now multiversal. You've all heard this secret war thing is coming. You've all been begging us to cross over the ultimate universe with the regular universe. And Spider-Man has already met Miles. This is a thing we did in Bendis' Spider-Man. Okay, you want Spider-Verse? We'll give you Spider-Verse. And the first one, was helmed by one of the biggest names in all of comics who, better or worse, had made himself a force in the Marvel Spider Pantheon, one of the best-known comedy writers at Marvel of the last 20 years. And he enters Spider-Verse, and he takes us to this place we've never been, where there is a limitlessness to the concept of Spider-Man. We're not dealing with, who's Peter Parker? Is he Peter or this clone? Who's that? That's Kane. No, no, this is, there's 30 Peter Parkers and nobody's even questioning if they're all legitimate. Other multi-spider stories had questions of legitimacy, but this one starts with the assumption that all spiders are created equally and great, and we're only focusing on 616 Peter because we're 616 readers. So from that perspective, Spider-Verse is grandiose. Spider-Verse is the notion that nothing has ever been this big. And from there, Spider-Verse kind of, I don't want to say like loses track, but let's be honest, Spider-Geddon was no Spider-Verse. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it really was a a weaker version of the same concept and then, you know, I I sort of thought that the McKay's Spider-Verse was kind of the, the solution to the issue of like, well, we want to repeat this, but it can't be just like a light attempt at the same thing. It's really got to be, instead of light as in like, you know, 19 issues instead of 38 we're really going to cut down to the efficient like let's just get you the story a solid six is really good i thought this played well for returning to the same concept just doing it six issues and done you know i it's i i got everything out of it that i think any multiversal spider-verse story really can give us and i got through it much quicker but now we get to the issue of like have we kind of just overdone this concept and made it too small. I hear what you're saying. This is six issues you can run away with. And I sort of made a comment last episode that I really regret and thought about editing it out because it didn't bother me till I heard it in the editing. But I made the comment of if I ever needed to give somebody a shortcut on Mayday, I might just give them Renew Your Vows and be like, it's more or less the best you're going to get out of Spider Girl in a different spider person. I take that back and I regret it, not only because that shortchanges these two female characters being two distinctly different characters, 
years, but there is no way to truly, and this is something I've like, I've really come to experience. I love cut downs, but there really is no way to experience, you know, 200 issues of Claremont in a best of trades collection. You cannot get the grandness of multiversity from looking back at some titles. And I think investigating an individual universe the way we did this deep dive for like Spider-Girl really works. But if you want to understand what it was like to read Secret Wars as it came out, I think you would need to literally rebuild the publishing schedule. I don't think any amount of doing a read order simulates it. And I think for many people, Spider-Verse was an all-encompassing event. And this one was just six issues. The first one was written by Dan Slott with help by Christos Gage. The second one was written by Christos Gage. This one is written by some guy who has gone on to become a big name, but in 2019, he was some guy with help from the guy who helped on the first one and wrote the second one. There's a law of diminishing returns here. I definitely see what you're saying. I think you do make a very valid point. And I think fans felt the same way by number. Spider-Verse kicks off at 67,000 cops. 66,726, right? That's a lot. It's a pretty good number. It's the lowest number one for any Spider-Verse. It is what we might effectively call Spider-Geddon low, but all right, that should have been okay. The second issue by Ryan North drops to 27,000 copies, which is the first sign something is deeply wrong with the spider machine. Issue three fails to hit 25,000 copies. That is another very bad sign. Then came the thing that shocked me to pieces. Taron Killam's issue only sold 19,207 copies. Now, for those who don't recognize that he was on SNL for a very long time, would go on to have the show Single Parents, he is actually married to Colby Smulders, who is better known as Maria Hill in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And he was part of SNL with Heidi Gardner, who is married to Zeb Wells. So there really is a lot of connectivity between the kind of like SNL crew and the Marvel crew. Bo and Yang, I will give you the best night of your life. <laughs> I was shocked that Taron Killam's issue only sold 19,000 copies. That's mind-blowing. I gotta wonder if some of it comes down to promotion. You know, are is Marvel not making the best use of these fun guest authorships that they get sometimes? I, I feel like something we hear a lot is that, like, to come in and be successful in really a lot of media right now, one of the big paths to do it is to show up with the big social media following and be like, hey, you know, like, when I put out to my followers that I'm writing a, a Spider-Verse issue, for instance, it will definitely gain some traction. And I feel like I see Marvel get these people in that have that kind of following and nothing really ever comes of kind of putting it out there in the forum where people might generate the kind of hype that would lift the sales a little bit. Yes, I'm really, really surprised. Yes, because at the same time, March 2020, that's seriously barely before Death of Doctor Strange. Barely Barely before Timeless, barely before the Moon Knight relaunch that's on the heels of the Moon Knight TV show, like to give Jed McKay, who sold the least number of any book ever called Spider-Verse for the finale of the run, which featured the return of the guy who wrote Spider-Geddon, which featured Ryan North, who would go on to take Fantastic Four and have a multi-Eisner nominated run on Squirrel Girl, that from optics, not coming for Jed McKay, but from optics, this guy would go on to get some of the 
biggest hands that you could possibly play in the Marvel Universe. They really trusted this guy with their cards. Yeah. Now, it is of note that issue five for Christos Gage only bounced back to 20,000. And finally, Jed McKay closes out the series at 19,200 copies for the finale. It's really hard not to see why Marvel said we need a little bit of break on Spider-Verse. They would come back instead with Spider-Gwen, Spider-Gwen verse Gwen. They do the Spider-Verse Infinity comic that only uses the word Spider-Verse to essentially indicate that this can be any character in the Spider-Verse. That is the only thing that that term means there. This is um this is really the end of a story type for the Marvel offices. We get Edge of Spider-Verse in 2022, which leads into Spider-Man by Dan Slott and Mark Bagley. But it is very clear that this was the point at which Marvel said, we're flailing on this property. And yet they are still trying to play around with it. I'm excited for us to close things out with Edge of Spider-Verse and a couple other little things. And we're going to have sewn this up before Spider-Man ends. And maybe we will return to that at some point. You know, maybe that'll be a, a sort of special video live revisit of all this work that we've been doing. But I like that we are coming to an end in which Marvel still really seems to be invested in the idea of the Spider-Verse, but they are now trying a different path. It's a mix of event and ongoing, which, you know, maybe that's the way to do it. I have delved into the, you know, already read all of the Edge of Spider-Verse stuff and delved into the Spider-Man comic a bit, and it really is another Spider-Verse story, but it's done a little differently, and, you know, we're back to dance slot. Maybe that, maybe that was a magic ingredient that we've got to return to. It appears as though while there is real interest in changing up the format, taking some big different swings, there is no interest in letting go of the idea of Spider-Verse. And I don't expect that that is going to change with two more movies on the horizon. So I'm just really interested to keep watching this play out, even if we will be sewing up our regular commentary on what's there. And it is of note that as we move on to Renew Your Vows and Spider-Verse, we are going to cross the threshold into 400 issues covered in just our AU segment alone. So, congratulations. You've read 400 fucking Spider-Books in six months, and uh, hope you're okay with that. I stand by all of my choices. Me too. And I want to thank Marvel Unlimited for making it so possible. Like, we could have never done this project if it weren't for the fact that, you know, 200 of those issues were MC2 and all available on Marvel Unlimited. Very much so. Deeply appreciated. definitely feel kind of bad that the eight years later era of Renew Your Vows doesn't really take my breath away. First of all, eight years later, really didn't see that coming. This jump is wild. I thought this might have been more of a progression, but I guess that's what happens when you don't have the ability to see how long the series is going to last. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a degree of sense because comics really just has a lot of trouble getting characters aged up in any kind of 
sequential staged format. It's either big age jumps for a character, but there's no notation that time has moved forward for everybody else in the universe. Or it's time clearly has moved forward because it's it's impossible that it hasn't, but the characters seem to be staying the same age. Or, you know, they'll just kind of randomly jump back and forth between ages. One day Kitty Pride's 15, the next day she's 25. So I think going with a time jump makes a lot of sense. It is of note, and I said this before when we were talking about it, Peter and MJ are aging stellarly, which I buy. I really do believe that they would be those parents that when their child is 16 years old, don't look any different than the day that child was born. I love that for them. Peter, you know, you could say it's spider bite things. Mary Jane just has the best collection of like serums and peels and masks, and she keeps it tight. Love that for both of them. I always love a television time jump where you get that moment. Uh, you know, the Battlestar Galactica one is the best example. You know, there's just that brief pan forward in the season finale of season two. And then it's been a year that they've been on New Caprica and everything is bad. And you get a break. And that's when you know that next season we're really digging into that year and, you know, what happened in between and all that stuff. I think something like that would really be an interesting way to go for a book like this. Maybe they didn't know when the last one closed out that this is what they were going to do. I don't know. But it is kind of an abrupt jump right into it with very little. There's never any time to reflect. There's very little mention of anything that has happened in the ensuing eight years that like might be important to any of these people. You know, they didn't experience any of the insane Marvel events that seem to happen every six months such that like, you know, they mentioned the incident at any point. But I think getting Annie a little older is uh, important. And part of the way they do it really, I think, has to echo your concerns that maybe they didn't know this is where it was all going when they finished the last arc. But the legacy pages are for classic Renew Your Vows. They're about little girl Annie. So the legacy pages make it seem like they had no idea they were doing this time change. Yeah. And that's tough. Now, yeah. I want to just give it up big time to editor Heather Antos, who took so many fucking chances on this. Like, Nick Roche is the perfect penciler for this book. And I only regret that this guy who manages to keep Annie young and cartoony and unsexual while still strong and powerful. But like, if you take a look on digital page six of issue 13, the bulge he puts on Spider-Man is Dirk Diggler levels of what were you thinking? So I love this guy. Artwork spectacular. The women look lovely and the men look objectifiable. And he draws a Wolverine that's like sexy but silly. His Peter is sexy but silly. His women are also sexy. There's absolutely no taking from them. The way he uses the angles of this costume, the way he utilizes the dimension and movement, like when Peter is flipping off the wall, but he still has the arced feet, which is very about to leap, very about to jump. You know, this art is so good and it just doesn't look like any other Marvel comic. It looks indie. It looks maybe a little 
even, uh, you know, like animation inspired more than comic booky. I just think that this is an out of this world knockout for an attempt at redoing something. Yeah, I really agree. The visual style really gives you something that says all ages in the kind of most mature way. This is not a cartoony style like, hey, kids, look at this teen. But it's also not like, hmm, look at this 90210 teenager. It's just a kind of consistent like everybody can identify with a character and get what they want out of it um and boy is that uh important when you are featuring a ton of the x-men for some reason i have to wonder if this was going to be a shine book like if they were hoping to do x-men renew your vows next and something happened that they said at the last second no we're gonna do a much clearer kind of like sticking with Spider-Man renew your vows there's so much X-Men in this it's kind of dizzy yeah I mean like it's their crossover event that we are following from the perspective of the Parker family and just to note real quick the fact that I can't help but feel like there was not a lot of awareness as they were planning these arcs together it really does look like they tried to age up a child Annie on the final page of the legacy pages the Nathan Stockman Renew Your Vows pinup that's the last page of the book it looks like child Annie's face on like teenager Annie's body it maybe doesn't really work for me but it does actually accentuate something that I feel like really is worth saying whoever came up with that these three costumes are minor variations on the exact same look in different colors such that they all feel unique and one of a kind but part of the same family Nina Garcia would tell them that their collection aesthetic choice is very clear. She sees the story. She sees the color. It's very editorial. It's very dramatic. And I love it. I agree with all of that. I also really love that Annie's costume is a an updated, less padding, less handlebars version of her kid costume. Truly. that's a. I love less handlebars version. That's great. They are the royal spider family in a way that I'm so charmed by. I really do love. I don't think that the book the concept ever really gets the balance of like who and what are we here for I almost think this would work as like its own you know like MC2 if there were three books being published in this universe and then maybe a fourth that's the family you know one for each person and then a fourth for the family I just feel like there are things that you really can get out of each character and focusing more tightly on them that it's just never possible to do when you're only focusing on the family as a whole and as such they all get a little bit shortchanged that is made even more difficult by the fact that they're like oh yeah and the X-Men are super important in this world. You know when like you're waiting to I don't know learn to drive a car with your parents or your older sibling or whatever like I was really lucky my aunt knew that my parents couldn't always take me seriously growing up because I was a very dramatic kid so my aunt was like I don't live with you I'll take you driving all the time and she would be coming over and I'd be so excited and she would get here and she'd be like can I just have lunch first and I'd be like sure and then we'd have lunch and I'd still be like ready to go and she'd be like I'm just gonna sit with your mom for a few minutes and I'd be like oh totally and I'm still waiting to go and then she'd be like oh are you ready to go and I'd be like actually now I have I, I have to go to I have to go to go to thing now oh I'll drive you You know you can drive there oh okay well so like you finally get there and then you get to do the thing for like five minutes and then you're at your friend's house and that's it and like I know it sounds like a silly example but it's a very specific coming of age thing for many people this when am I 
going to get to practice driving? When am I going to get to become a driver? This natural acceptance of adulthood in an external way that you can prove by virtue of achievement, right? There's a lot of things that are coming of age that are personal or unexpressible in a way that can't be like mounted. You know, something like a first kiss, you can tell people about it, but it's not the same thing as having your license. I feel like this book was eternally getting ready to dry. It got those five issues of getting started and then it's over. Then we get the ongoing and things start to ramp up and then all of a sudden there's this like hard pivot to the Venom stuff and then there's a hard pivot away from the Venom stuff. Then there's a hard pivot to give Norman head trauma and fix him. Sure. Then there's this jump forward. Then the jump forward gets a new art team right away. Like it never stops getting started long enough to do the thing that this arc, this Renew Your Vows arc actually feels so similar to that disjointed one that started the series. It's hard not to think that, you know, Annie's been waiting with the keys in her hand for the last three hours. I think that really is a perfect example. We still do get a bunch of cool stuff and you know, we're we're gonna it's so funny that we have covered this the way we have and kind of like from our perspective and our coverage we really kind of discovered Annie in the Spider-Geddon stories and so then to kind of get to go back and see all of her origin stuff and then we see where she goes from where we we personally first met her and from where this story leads off in McKay's Spider-Verse. I just she's still not getting that experience of yeah driving the car of actually like getting to sit there and have have some room to breathe but we are definitely not saying she's out of the game yet and so in a lot of ways I'm still like kind of on the edge of my seat like ready to go. And speaking of ready to go, Jody Hauser wasted no time bringing to life a Mary Jane that is worth celebrating. I mean, all Mary Jane is worth celebrating. I don't know that there's as many super cool non-hero Marvel characters as Mary Jane Watson, Parker, Watson. What else? Has she ever been a Jameson? Did she marry him? I don't know. But Mary Jane is such a celebratable character and she's so spectacular and amazing and sensational. Let's get all of them in there, right? She's friendly neighborhood. And there's that image of her in the second issue on page four where she's running and then we see her with... Iron Man and we get this idea of who she is. I probably was made a little uncomfortable by the fact that she is referred to as Spider Mom. That really hit my fucking ear wrong. But then I thought about it more and I realized that it was written by a woman, edited by a woman and maybe that means it was done with the sort of affection and intelligence that it takes. I also think like that's one of those things that you can say and read in so many ways but like Mary Jane is a cool mom she's so clearly depicted as having her own life she's not one of those people that lives for her child and I'm a, I mean she's like you know the one making them go on this cruise and not worry about Annie to me like when she calls herself spider mom it's like when your friend's cool mom does it and like is kind of referencing the fact that despite the fact that she's not a mom first she is saying she's a mom in this moment you know, like for Mary Jane, like Spider-Mom is almost like kind of a jokey title for her. Yeah. And that was definitely how I was able
able to become like more okay with it that it's a bunch of young men i maybe could have used a young like, woman drawn into that scenario i see we get another like talking about outfits and clothes story for mary jane which i actually think to say mary jane talking about clothes is problematic is overly simplistic because she is a fashion entrepreneur she is someone who doesn't just design clothes she works within an industry and she's a businesswoman and she's self-sufficient and she knows how to take care of what she's doing so to see her have a special moment where she's trying on clothes with her daughter i'm gonna say that's sort of like if a guy who you know plays football gets to teach his daughter how to throw a perfect spiral or if a character is a cpa and is like i really want to teach my child how to balance a checkbook because i want them to know how to do this thing that's important to me i think it's actually a really important moment to see and i'm really grateful for it yeah i agree i mean it's the work has been done on mary jane being into fashion this is not you know well the girls have to talk about something it we believe it when janet van dyne does it we we you know People foam at the mouth for Jumbo Carnation mutant fashion moments in an X-book. Mary Jane is another example of a character that, like, because she is established as being one of the fashion people in the Marvel Universe, I actually kind of want to see those moments. Mary Jane just ends up being one of those characters that, because she is so firmly established in who she is as a person, what her interests are, when we have a moment where she is, you know, when we have a book where she is a spider person all the way through, through that's a novelty but it's really fun to return to don't forget like at her core mary jane always loves these things and she can share them with her kid and it's so important that she get to because we know that peter gets to by virtue of being a hero alongside his daughter and sharing his rogues gallery with her i don't really know if that's the right like i'm sharing my murderers with you but he kind of does you know this whole lizard thing and then there's the moloids and there's like a weird unicorn person. I think all of the villainy in this arc and this carnival, it's such a low stakes setup that it makes it really easy to, I don't know, lose track of what you're reading. This is really a family piece and that we get involved with Dr. Krikos is interesting, but that he is ultimately just Mr. Fucking Sinister in the most metally looking bondage gear. I don't know. What? Yeah, I mean, this does end up being where we really start like, oh, okay, are we in an X-Men story? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it is particularly surprising. You know, this first arc, the only arc to have Nick Roche, not that I don't think Nathan Stockman doesn't do a beautiful job. He does. It's really terrific. But this Nick Roche arc is really special. I actually give it like a pretty strong A- minus, maybe a B plus because the arc kind of goes nowhere. But this was a fun story. This was a great way to bring her back. I would have enjoyed this as an unlimited book for sure, even if it had to be broken up into like five issues instead of three. I'm here for these events I just don't know that the way they're paced out is the moving I was looking for yeah I think I agree with all of that it's it's probably about a B plus for me with a lot of A moments the sinister reveal does kind of pull things down in terms of you wrap up this storyline with a what but not like a good what like more like a why it does pay off but the payoff is also a why so yeah it is a really good introduction to the fact that this is our new status quo. Now, this second arc has a lot of why moments. 
sense. So in the first arc, we're told that the family is having some financial problems. In the second arc, we're told they're having some financial problems. They ultimately randomly go on like a vacation out of nowhere, which even though it's kind of like a, a low cost vacation, like it just seems like the money problems kind of ebb and flow through the story, which is fine. I'm not here for destitute superheroes all the time, but I don't know. There was a lot of focus on money and then like, hold on, Peter Parker, Peter Parker, science genius is the most money he can get really being a part-time substitute teacher. Is that really the most effective way he can support his family? I don't mean that like I'm telling him who to be, but like he could make a lot more money as a science teacher, as somebody who's worked in education, certain jobs do pay better. And somebody with his science background and his technical ability could make far more money as a an upper level AP chem teacher. I'm not trying to be silly, but like there's elements of realism and then there's really sitcom-y responses to them a few times in this story that made it a little tougher this second arc right from the get. The family's financial troubles are kind of the inverse of like what we were saying about Mary Jane's fashion thing. It's like Peter can only be a man if he is constantly trying to provide for his family and that story only works if he is struggling. And it also takes away Mary Jane's agency and the fact that she is great at what she does and she is dedicated and if you have put time into the readership of the spider people broadly you know that she has been working at it for a very long time you know that peter is like a top tier marvel genius who has at times like run his own corporations and i get that we need to have conflict conflict can come from a lot of sources people who make a solid living and can you know are not having like significant can we afford rent financial problems still have stuff to deal with when it comes to their finances and it ends up being one of the hallmarks of the like okay if we are forced to let peter grow up and be married and you know we're not gonna brand new day peter then they have to be dirt poor and constantly trying to figure out how they're going to make their next buck so he can show up and have the same conversation with J. jonah jameson i get why the beats are there they are not the worst beats in the world but i just do think that throughout the spider verse it's okay at this age married or no if peter is like solidly middle class and they are not worried about what they're going to do for money but you know are still you know they're not worried about what they're going to do for rent but they still have to work and money is still a concern those things can be possible to get because spider-man really is in this story i think meant to be the family that all of us have our part of and I want to be part of that with Spider-Man and his family and I want to celebrate this idea of togetherness but I'm probably a little frustrated by the Lacey and Reese story here. I would have loved it if this became like Spider-Adults and you know Spider-Girl starts her own Teen Titans not to anything but like that's a major thing in you know my original creator work you know we have the adult hero who very quickly is like all right you've learned the ropes it's been a couple of months you've got me on speed dial if you really are running around with kids your age cool just check in with your adult heroes but do your young hero thing i've got your back i trust you to make the right decisions and am here when needed that's the sort of growth that i'm looking for from a parent that trusts their child if we are going to say that this is real life situations it magnifies to the nth degree, then we need 
to accept that this is real life situations magnified to the nth degree. And there would need to be a sense of, I know that you're about to go up against, you know, Crazy Eights, his son, Sweet 16. And I think it's really complicated, but we really would have benefited from Reese and Lacey being more in the story in a positive way and not just one arcs teenage cannon fodder. And I think what you describe at this point, it's been eight years of superheroing for Annie. She's getting yes, to, you know, what they, what they say is like, you know, it takes 10 years to become a pro at anything. And, you know, they, it's often said that you kind of you can account for the fact that young people learn much faster and gain expertise much faster. So she's she's solidly in there. I think the way that they sometimes are like, oh, but you're still a kid. It doesn't quite jive with me because these are the parents that were like, no, we kind of have to let her hero. She has powers and she's going to encounter wrong being done in the world. We can't really account for those two things if we don't let her use what was given to her to set things right when she sees them wrong. I feel like the graduation from that is you have a ton of experience doing this. We fully trust you. And it just seems like eight years is long enough that there would be a lot more trust. And and this is part of why I think that not seeing any, I shouldn't say anything, but not seeing a lot of the break doesn't quite work for me because I feel like probably in her life, Annie has already should have already had experiences in which the trust was given to her that she wouldn't reveal her powers or her secret identity, but she did because she's only 12. But she learned her lesson and they got shit together. And, you know, now now she solidly knows that lesson. Eight years is a, you know, Buffy learned all of her best shit in seven seasons. I feel like Annie really is there. So to be doing these like, oh, it's high school. What do I do? Storylines just kind of doesn't really honor the work that's been done for these characters. It makes me think that there's a disconnect on the part of the creative team and the bigger corporate identity of Marvel. Sometimes one of the things that you hear is a show with a gimmick needs to lose the gimmick quickly because you learn the lesson very fast. And I feel like Marvel saw an opportunity to keep milking a young hero as long as they could in the same way that Spider-Man has stayed in vaguely the same era that they start in, even though Peter Parker can't. I don't know. We're always trapped in a sense of faux nostalgia for some of these characters. And I think that's where these books thrive, but also have trouble getting out of their own way. Also, to just mention, I really don't like the design on Reese. I think he is real creepy looking and not like in a way I'm into. Like, he's the world's most upsetting Homestuck. Yeah, I mean, but as you've already pointed out, this is not leading to Annie's trio of superhero teens. It's just this kind of one-off story about what she does trying to figure out superheroing in high school and it wraps up in a in a predictable way and it's t- it's fine i mean i agree with what you're saying but i didn't even get to a point of caring about 
like look or costume or powers or anything because it was immediately clear that we were not about to get like oh this is her crew in 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 part because the x-men are already there and seemingly important because we've had the sinister reveal so if she's getting teen superhero friends it's not these two fucking random kids from her school and then to be like time to go kill norman osborne <laughs> i believe i made a comment one time that i like spider-man the most when norman osborne is nowhere to be found yeah. and uh i'm gonna continue to keep an addendum on that normie almost always fine this kid really not bad a lot like normie he had a minute took a minute don't love this one either like this is not my guy but he's fine i don't know why they grew apart just to get reunited here i really need to ask is mr sinister doing brown face <laughs> yes i mean yes <laughs> Uh, you know, which is about his level of evil. <laughs> sure. I think it does say something that while the reveal is that the kids want to kill Normie due to wealth inequality, makes a lot of sense. The story, you know, Annie's narration is like, Normie, that's a person that used to be in my life. We don't talk much anymore. I feel like there is a creative instinct that agrees with what you're saying insofar as like, Normie is great. He can be great, but maybe best if we say like, not really a big part of this the ultimate conclusion even like i'm not really clear on why he was there i think it's so he can come back up later on and he does and it's sort of significant but i really don't know what it is that i'm supposed to really get from norman's inclusion here it's not troubling it doesn't really challenge the book but at the same time this might be the arc that said we only have so much time left maybe we don't need to buckle down so hard i think that that is the case we didn't leave in the best place with normie i think it was good to get like a an update on him with about this much of page time and you know it dovetails with the sinister and x-men stuff in an important way so narrative economy wise it makes a lot of sense i definitely i don't hate it at all i i'm very glad that we're not doing you know she and normie are best friends normie's our guy in the chair or something like that we kind of have covered a lot of that ground already but we got an update that made it very clear that he did not go down a bad path um he's just you know not not the biggest thing in annie's life which i think is is kind of a good choice since normie was at times the biggest thing in mayday's life and we got a lot of that out of our systems ultimately this arc gets kind of a c for me yeah there's just too clean an ending too oh well everything's fine bye yeah it's a whole other story if it's about injustices in and wealth inequality and like what the working class goes through with these kids that are you know teen superheroes but wait nope they're not it's just it's a big frenetic mixed bag that throws a lot of stuff out there gets some work done that's necessary to sew this whole thing up but the elements that it uses to get there it kind of can't really justify why they exist and that's mostly these two uh temporarily powered teens that we're just gonna kind of forget about from here on out so that for the last arc with art by scott koblish who does a really great job keeping the consistent tone of the title but has a really definitive unique personal style and really emphasizes different significant visual elements in different ways so the book does take a very different turn visually at this point again it is consistent but it's noticeably different and we go right back to the x-men in fact we really up the stakes on mutants because we get namor which don't know why he's on three pages really the one shot number 19 it does feel in some ways like 
it was there to give Scott Koblish a minute to get used to the story, to figure out how we're going to put a bow on this universe. But it only really functions as a preface to this arc in as far as the X-Men are in it. And then it becomes an X-Men book. Yep. I like the idea of Peter and Mary Jane taking a vacation. It, of course, turns into what any Spider-Man vacation would. That's fine. You know, it's fun. It Because it really portends this, like, we're going to hard shift into an X-Men story. It's uh, It feels a little unfortunate evaluating it now. But in and of itself, it's not a bad story. There's some good gags. Namor just, like, making out with the captain for no reason is funny. Namor has been completely ruined through the Marvel Universe now by Wakanda Forever's MCU Namor, who is just every time that somebody thinks Namor in the comics is sexy now, I can't, I want to like crawl into the page and tell them what they're missing out here. Still just great, funny moment. Telling you right now, gear up for an X-Men story. Yeah, that like pages four through 10 are just Peter and Logan. It's notable. It's one of the reasons that I say this isn't exactly the most Annie book. She shares a lot of the page time. But then we get something I... that They said, what are all of the best moments of May Day? Oh, of course. Let's do April. Yeah. Only April here is... Sarah. And no, her costume is not cooler than yours. She looks like the Goblin Queen wearing Aku from Samurai Jack. Oh, that's an apt description. Yeah, this is not superior, my dear. You are superior. This is... And then it's sinister. This is just like the weirdest issue 20. And like, I didn't see an evil spiderling coming. Yeah, no. No, I didn't see it when it was April either. And it didn't seem like a good idea then. It's it's just so, so weird. That people always think we got to clone the spider people. It's so odd to me. And the fact that it's by Mr. Sinister this time. Yeah. You know, again... Again, Jody Hauser bringing in the X-Men, if nothing else, says sales. And I mean that positively. I mean like really, you know, good move, thinking of ways to help support the book in a long-term way. I love that. But I also think that it makes this arc a little confusing. All of a sudden, Norman's back and there's like other evil spider people and he becomes a spider person at some point. I don't even know there is just so much happening in this arc weird science and in so many ways it feels like jody hauser deserved like a year and a half to tell this story these four issues if it was renew your vows universe and it was spider-man x-men throw in an avenger it would have felt really really good but moments like that powerful moment between mary jane and annie feel so smushed in between punch em ups that it really unempowers a powerful script I agree. It was unfortunate because we got an, a glimpse of the fact that this was going to come up in the Spider-Geddon story because when Mayday meets Annie, Annie says, like, I was supposed to have an older sister. I, you know, I just found out I was supposed to have an older sister and she would have been May. And in that context, it also felt really like, oh, geez, really? Like, the only way we can identify May with these people is to be like, here, you're, you were miscarried. Like, it was just... It, felt weird and I don't think anybody intended it to but it did and coming back and seeing it here I, I really feel like these are the moments that a writer like Jody 
Hauser, a, a female writer, can speak to these moments in a way that makes them feel really good and authentic and do not make me raise an eyebrow in and of themselves. It's that, like, had I seen this script, I might have been like, hey, we need to either give her another issue or retool things so that this moment has a chance to breathe and is not sandwiched between trying to figure out what Mr. Sinister is up to, which feels like an odd connector to visiting a miscarried baby's grave or visiting inside they're visiting ben's grave then they're talking about a miscarried baby it's just weird yeah and that's part of the kind of misdirect that they use in a lot of ways that annie's doppelganger is not a clone that may's doppelganger just is a spider-faced person i don't i don't know what that's about but you know it's a really weird series of like playing against expectations mentioning things developing characters removing them changing things all of a sudden the final issue is he's going to fix the mutants like there's so many pivots and i don't think it's josie how jody hauser's fault i really think this felt like it was going to be given 10 issues and then was given like you know four but at least we get that image of wolverine and that i tank was top. just about to ask if you were going to mention wolverine in the tank top at least we get Wolverine in that tank top and it's just so important that we take a minute to think about Wolverine in that tank top in issue 23 on page six, looking all sorts of that's exactly how double wide he should be. It's so good. It is truly one of the most correct moments of the entire story. Because the ending is just so rushed and then all of a sudden Norman is six armed and he had a giant mecha and Mr sinister gets squished like it really does feel like they told her we're taking some of your issues away and what other three issues you would have had are now spider girls number one and that's how we're going to finish out your contract like it doesn't feel respectful of the heartful job she did yeah i agree really can't account for what happened here but ultimately the, the, the story just wraps you know like this is just one more in their adventures which is something that you know i don't like but i I appreciate that it's not any kind of like I hope you enjoyed it because this is all you're getting like this is the definitive Annie story this is the definitive spider family story you will never get another one it very much ends like and that was just Thursday's adventure you wouldn't believe what happened next week not that we're publishing that but that it could happen anytime that we know that we got spider girls and that we are about to jump into spider verse where we'll see Annie again just we're leaving off at least on a note of like this is not the end of this character character at all which i think is given what we get it's really important to have that be the note because for so much of this series like i said it's just waiting to get in the car to start driving and never really getting to move i genuinely think that if i were given an opportunity to see this five issues played out over 10 there's almost no way any version of this 10 issues wouldn't get a b plus from me what we get kind of has to get a b minus maybe a c plus it's a little rushed but based on what it could have been, I would love to give it an A. And I give the heart of the Jody Hauser era a strong A-. The heart of the era was very good. It just never had the opportunity to live up to its potential. And that's because when you only give a book 10 issues to take on a messy 17 issues full of retcons, full of other people finishing out other people's stories with villains that are off the table and a directive to not bring up anything from the last 
18 issues, yeah, you do deserve a little bit more time to get your foot. Yep, I think you are absolutely right on all fronts. There really is something something great here, and there's a core that is what we love about these non-616 spider people, spider family stories. Um, it just is, it doesn't actually meter out and publish out in a way that does it justice, but I don't think that is the fault of a single creative, and I think Jody Hauser does some really good work here. I'm still super positive on this whole idea. I'm still really happy that we read all this, and I really could see more in this world. I think I'd love to move away from the idea of renew your vows. I'd love to move away from it always being the family has to be together. Um, I see this as a great part of the Spider-Verse. Speaking of Spider-Verse, I think that's where we're headed. Let's go. So Spider-Verse from 2019 and 2020, I'm very positive on the notion of what's going on here, but I really would have preferred this be called Edge of Spider-Verse because it really is more one of those let's just name a bunch of spider character edge stories than it is let's define an arc stories from a specific event. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that is pretty on point. The story the story itself feels very, I don't know, maybe pointed in a way that doesn't lock into what I thought a Spider-Verse story should be. There's a little too, oh, yeah, this is just a spider adventure. Come do it with me. That's not really what I thought Spider-Verse, like the event was. And this feels very just come do it with me. I don't love that it's Miles saving Annie. That feels a little unfair, but I like that it's Miles. I do really like that it's Miles. That's that's a big part of it. And while it ends up being Miles saving Annie, it doesn't feel like that's what we're doing. It feels like what we're doing is what Spider-Zero feels needs to happen. The fact that the result of that is that Annie is, is saved kind of feels tangential to the fact that Miles is having the important Spider-Verse adventures. Miles is the one that is relating to the web of life and the web of destiny and he's finding his own crew you know Peter I mean it's funny at the end of the day Peter's kind of the most divorced from it uh, even though the original Spider-Verse story really had everybody being like Peter you are the one true spider tell us what to do when all was said and done the crew that formed up and made up web warriors which included Mayday really became like the Spider-Verse crew and when we got into Spider-Geddon, Peter was really kind of off to the side and it was that mostly that recognizable crew. Miles played a much bigger role in that. Going into this, it feels right that he is having this chance to be like, let me go explore the Spider-Verse a little bit and let me find some people that relate to me the way that like Karn related to Billy Braddock and, uh, you know, to Gwen and Spider-Ham. Let, let me get my own multi-Spider-Versal people so that we can do our own adventures. I It feels appropriate. It feels right to me. And I get that. I 
do love that perspective. I only wish Spider-Zero felt more developed or like I'm supposed to know who she is. Like there's just something. Oh, I'm here. Hello. Oh, okay. She's in number one. She's in number six. And then she appears in four issues of Gwenverse. That's it. Nowhere else. And I'm not trying to be flip about it. It's been three years though. And in like three years, you get 249 appearances from Deadpool. So it's a little surprising that this character is like this central part of the story. I love that there are two characters of color anchoring this book. I love that. I just feel like Spider-Zero was co-anchoring the book. Yeah, I definitely get what you're saying. This is a character that we could use a lot more from. I guess I'm in that space of feeling like 2019 to 2022 is not a ton of time. And this is a character whose time could still be coming. I agree. I do. And it's in that regard. I do just want to pay a little attention to the Spider-Sonas. I'm not here to judge them or rate them. I just want to say how cool it is that Marvel included these. Spider-Requiem created by Cotton Valent. The Spinster created by Antonio Demico. And V created by VO3. This really cool idea of taking fan-created Spider characters and saying they're part of the Spider-Verse. As long as these creators are being appropriately awarded, rewarded, compensated, whatever the proper metric term is. I love this. Cool. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, and the fact that we get a big splash with all of them at the end, really special. Now, the second issue of this title, I do love Spider-Man. I love that she's a legit spider hero. I love the Carnage stuff. The stuff that I thought was going to be like the whole issue is just the six-page opening, which I appreciate. I just maybe didn't need another story telling me if nothing matters, then it all matters. I've gotten that beat a million times and I've gotten it a million cool ways. The value of being told that over and over again is wearing thinner the more I'm told that story. Yeah, this felt like a particular writer's desire to play around with some ideas that recur a lot and a character that we all felt was kind of cool and special when it came to Spider-Verse stuff. And I respect that. I get that. It just sometimes I feel like you got to check those impulses because it just doesn't read the same to the reader as you, the creator, who's like, well, I've never gotten to write that before. I've read it a billion times at this point. Yeah, I really liked the challenge of Peter maybe becoming Carnage at the end. If he's trying to use it in like a good way, I'd love it. If he's just going to go evil and be like evil, evil Peter versus his grandma, that's not cool. That's sort of like a, a weird story nobody's looking for. But I... <laughs> I really love what we got here. I love Uncle Ben's stories. Uh, you know, I just got that gilf thing going, but you know, a strong, supportive male, older figure. It's just a role we didn't get to see a lot. We always saw the male figure in the lead role. So seeing a support figure of an older man either supporting his female hero partner or a younger partner, whether they're a male or female, doesn't really matter. I really love that new role because it's not just Alfred. It's not just Butler Man. It's very active. And that's something that I think makes Spider-Man so unique. There is a lot more respect for the, you know, older sect of heroes and characters in the Spider-Verse by virtue of J. Jonah Jameson and Mary, Mary and Aunt May that I think really adds something to a character like Spider-Man. Yeah, I think that's all totally true. I, I love that they are always, especially Peter is really always drawn as classic Peter. 
Um, I love that he could potentially be a vector for some interesting play on what we've seen from like a very pure and kind of funny, uh, innocent by way of wisdom character that is Spider-Man. This was all really fun, I guess, is kind of what it all comes down to. For all, it's like definitely not, you know, perfect, definitely kind of hashed out beats. It still really was, you know, it put a smile on my face. I also like the spider sonas from this one. Spider, very much my visual aesthetic, very much mm-hmm. my kind of color tone. I love sea spider because I would cosplay the shit out of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, spider sting is my amazing husband Kevo's sort of color neon vibe. I just think it's really cool that all of these really creative fans who are creators too, you know, they're really creative fans and they're also really like excited fanful creators and seeing them get to live in both worlds by creating something into the Spider-Verse and then having it printed. There's a magic that really does underline and highlight what makes Spider-Verse this thing. Completely agree. All right, I'm going to be honest. I'm kind of over Penny Parker. It has nothing to do with Penny Parker not being amazing. I love the idea of Penny Parker and I love this fucking Daredevil. Holy shit. That's what I really wanted to hear you talk about. And you know, I'd maybe fuck this Craven a little bit. Maybe. Um, But the overall thing that I'm starting to get from Penny Parker is, well, also, I have no idea why he's also part Mr. Sinister. Why is everybody saying every spider story needs Nathaniel Essex for it to be good? Really confusing. I feel like Penny Parker at some point became shorthand for, oh, but I speak cool spider kid. Don't worry. And she is cool. But every time you remind me, adult person, how cool Penny Parker is, adult, I am reminded that she is essentially co-opted by adults. I am reminded that she is Penny Parker, who is an adult creator's idea of a young spider person. And again, love it. Very here for it. But the more it's told to me by guys my age, the harder and harder it's becoming to think that this is really in touch with what the youth market thinks of spider people. And just don't say she is the beacon for what's cool and edgy then. Say she's what's, you know, futurist and reimaginative and anime influenced, but don't sell me how young and cool she is with a guy you're also saying is the right tone for Doctor Strange as an old white guy. A big part, maybe get somebody else to be writing this character. She's so synonymous with Gerard Way, I find really interesting, but that so much time has passed and now even Gerard Way maybe might not be the person. There are so many options here. It's been a minute. She could have grown up by now, you know what I mean? Like she could be somebody who is in her mid twenties at this point, and then like somebody, or even young twenties, and then somebody who's thirty writing her doesn't seem so crazy. We're still kind of, because we really only get her in flashes and portraits and frames. We're really not seeing much movement from whatever story seems to be playing out in her world. That to me is actually it seems very cool. It's just like we're always getting a really quick slice of something that seems a little too complicated because anime-inspired stories always are too complicated. Anime stories are always too complicated, so of course anime-inspired ones should be too. But when we kind of cut in to pull her out and bring her into spider shenanigans, it it doesn't really do justice to the fact that this is a very cool character that comes from a world that is aesthetically very cool. You know, anybody seems to get a grip on the anchor points that might be cool to write about, but from there actually doing the writing for the character never quite pans out but i 
do love the Daredevil. Oh my God, I love the Daredevil. The design, the idea that Spider-Man and Daredevil, any world connected, I love that. Right, yeah. That's all the stuff that I was thinking about. It was at this point that I really came to realize this should have just been like a supersized annual. This could not support 132 pages, but it really could have handled 64. But 132 is just a lot to ask this book to carry. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think what it's relying on is like, you know, we're going to get in and out of the universe pretty quick. Hopefully you'll love it. And if you don't, it'll be over soon. And, you know, also, we didn't talk about this Craven is super hot, too. Yeah, I mean, I'd fuck him. He's, you know, I love body tats like that. It's really hot. Yeah, and yes, uh, yeah. The fact that he is a sinister reanimated one weirdly does it. I don't know. I got problems, but oh, also Uncle Ben is really hot. This just sexy universe overall. Let's let's actually dig in here. Let's hire an actual cool person to write this particular universe and let's let's actually dig into these stories and not just do little flashes. Like an Alyssa Wong who is well yes. ingratiated at Marvel. They're not like a Johnny Come Lately and they have the experience with complicated body horror to tell a great Penny Parker story. So trust the creators that, you know, you've already got. Or yep. some of these awesome Spider Sona creators. Sun Spider, hell yeah, ambulatory wheelchair user. Love it. Uh, Sun Spider comes back for uh, Edge of Spider-Verse. Oh yeah, you're totally right. I love Garden Spider. You're sexy, super cute, and White Widow, God bless. Everything to me, White Widow, you are so cool in such a, like, Gendy Tartakovsky way, and yep. you're my hero. Yeah, exactly what I was thinking. Okay, so I don't love Westerns in the first place. I'm not particularly connected to Western reimaginings of characters I love. So, you know, I love Taron Killam. I think he is awesome and uh, very funny, and I love his singing voice. I don't know that I really got a whole lot out of this particular issue but I did find the Scorpion a really cool reimagining yes he was a really cool reimagining you know this like super swollen bodied uh, he's got the Scorpion tail with his hair there's a luchador vibe to it Um, there's a really cool aesthetic to it that I really like you know Viva El Pistero Araña he's like he's a lot of fun it's an interesting story but and you know no one could have known that in advance but I can see why maybe it's not like the world's most beloved narrative like it's not like oh everyone goes back to this one it's a great story like it turns out Taron Killam has like storytelling instincts that work but this you know a spider western I don't know was the thing the market was craving yeah I mean I didn't like this character in Spider-Geddon this is just like this is like one too many like there's a spider everything for me the you know the fucking horse having the mask like it's funny in like a Deadpool way but the Spider-Verse doesn't really get to that level of humor. So it just kind of, I don't know, it reads weird to me. I was not excited when I saw that this was the next issue that I would be reading because I really just did not like this character in the last one. Given that, I do think it is a really fantastic story. That splash page of the scorpion with the scorpion-like totem animal fighting the spider, it's just a beautiful page. And yeah, just really great storytelling instinct 
instincts on Taron Killam. Given that I don't like this character, this was a definitive, like, he does have one good story moment for me, but, like, please let us never revisit this one. And Ben was his brother? Like, there were things, because, like, Ben Riley, so it doesn't have to be Uncle Ben. So in this one, his brother, Ben Riley, died, and that's what set him on the path. Interesting reimagining. But I'm at my limit, I guess, on what we'll go with, like, hokey spider stories I'm looking to read, because hokey is kind of the word. You know, we don't think of Westerns in a modern audience as exciting and riveting quite the same way. There's some really cool, oh, I remember that Disney ride to this that I like a lot, but that is in many ways what it feels like I'm reading here. I'm reading a investigation of things that perhaps I've already seen and maybe I've seen, I don't want to say better, but I've seen done where they fit better. Yeah, I definitely feel that. The spider sonas this issue are equally fan-fucktastic. I just want to give everyone who created a spider sona a million billion points of credit. The incredible Ren, so stunning. Spinner, super cool. And Hollow is the gobliniest spider I've ever seen. <laughs> yep, so good. It's just really great that it's so many female creators, so many female characters, uh, you know, non-ambulatory characters. I love that. That's the kind of things you want to see. You want to see transformations of those ideas. And I really appreciated that, you know, Spinner, there's a reference to uh, Greek mythology in which spider stories play a role and that doesn't get brought up a lot in popular Spider-Man, Spider-Verse stuff. And I thought that was a particular note that like, pay attention, that could be a really cool addition to this whole thing because we're getting into God stuff and spider stuff now. You know what I wish we weren't getting into in spider stuff? Spider-Man noir again. You know what else I wish wasn't there? Nazi stuff. Yeah, that's really all I got on this one, man. Yeah, I do appreciate the red, white, and blood aesthetic. That is not easy to carry off. It looks really gorgeous. Spider-Man Noir as a character played really well as like, this dude is the worst, and we kind of need that to balance out. You know, we need that in the original Spider-Verse to kind of balance out the fact that like, if this is all heroes teaming up against a big bad without little some kind of little interaction personal challenge it's just kind of not going to read as really having a ton of actual conflict the fact that he was a dude from a time period that we know was bad you know we cannot make america great again because the times you're referring to were not actually great that he represents that that he still is a vigilante and so you know is in the mix for whatever reason but ultimately gets taken out because there just really isn't the same room for him in our consciousness and in the fact that this is a multiverse where anything is happening so we don't have to have racist people from the 40s be a part of it. Like, we get to choose. It's imagination. We get to make up the rules. And the rules are, we leave those people out. So that dude died, and that was great. And everybody wants to kind of bring him back and erase that stuff, which you can't really do, and it doesn't do anything for us, because the lesson of, like, we do not have to include these people is the correct lesson, and it ends with that guy not coming back. To bring him back and to go explore his world, and then to use Nazi symbology... Though you are clearly saying it's wrong, it still is for entertainment purposes. This is not a historical document. This is not, you know, as accurate as possible historical fiction. This is a Nazi lady in front of the swastika using a spider idol to make herself a, like, hybrid insect person. We just didn't need any of it. I would have said no to this one in in the pitch. I'm not really sure why this was allowed to go through. I agree. It's cool to see a take on Swarm, 
but it's not worth everything else. And that's kind of all there is to it. I feel most bad for the people that did the spider sonas that are attached to this one because they're all really lovely and fun. You know I love me a ramen spider. You know, that's our traditional date. We do, we do ramen. Go. So spider ramen fits us perfectly. You know, the spy one, really gorgeous. There, there's a lot of elements of black tarantula in there. I feel like, you know, there's a little bit of kingpin in that dude with the target on him. Very, very cool. Spider wool, so cute. Like the fact that these really run the gamut and that people really put themselves into it. I just, I love it so much. And that brings us to the conclusion with Spider-Verse number six, which I think might go down in history as my least number of notes on a full issue ever. Mm. And it literally, my note is this final issue is so rushed. It's a thin tangle. They need to get into it. I don't know who some of these people are. I don't know when some of them got into the story other than several of them were Spider-Sonas, but not all of them are recognizable from those pages. So it could be just that some of it is artistic interpretation. The ending is just warm and lovely and it's positive, which I appreciate, but there is no way I accept this as more than a one shot. Yeah, I think I think everything you're saying is true. It's also just like we did a lot of work gathering all of these people just to kind of punch a rubber band ball. I don't know. It just didn't quite have the setup to get us to this point and have it mean everything that the journey ought to have led us to. It's still really cool. It was still really fun. Some great aesthetics to it. Again, I really love Spider Zero. I love Miles. I love Annie. I love seeing them all together. I love them as a trio, you know, their own gang of web warriors. Like I said, the next generation, which Spider Zero says they are at one point. That all makes a ton of sense to me. And I want to honor all of that and just be positive about it. If I'm being evaluative, it does not all thrive the way I wish it did, given how much I want to honor the ideas. But it's kind of the type of thing where I just want to appreciate what's there and sort of move past this criticism as fast as possible so that I can kind of just hope that the next thing is able to give these characters the room to breathe and the space to kind of flesh out. Yes, because I actually don't think that the tangle was clear until the end. No, not at all. I don't think exactly what the spider idol could, because then if that one woman could just become like swarm with it, then it seems a little too big a deal. And like, I don't know, everything about this ending just kind of happens to me. I don't feel like I got to be part of this. I feel like I read it and it happened to me. Yeah. That's really my take. It was required that I have the information for future purposes that I'm kind of unclear about. Not that I join these beloved characters on a journey. In that regard, I'm going to give this a C plus. Nothing was great. Nothing was terrible. I wasn't really bored, but at no point did I feel included exactly. So, you know, this is an example of an event that just kind of happens to you, less an event that you get to interact with. And the fact that it was six issues when I'm used to thinking, oh, Spider-Verse, I have 18 issues. I have 32 issues. I'm going to see these characters, then see them again so I can see what they learn. It just felt like a best moments take. And I think that's part of what you lose in a cut down. You lose the romance. And this just didn't romance me. So C, C plus. Yeah, I agree with that grade. I love that we end on this page that has three panels and it's Spider Zero, Miles and Annie hugging and, you know, Miles returning to his time. I I love them as a group. That's a thing that I'm really rooting for. Shout out to Spider Manly, Web Witch, and Recluse, the last three Spider Sonas that we get. Spider Manly is very silly, but I still buy it. Web Witch, I think probably, you know, doing a little bit more magic in the Spider-Verse would be 
a much needed addition and recluse just looks really cool and badass i agree i feel like this was a fun journey and it sets us up for our final couple of stories we are really really winding down the end of this program we're going to take a look at spider gwen gwenverse one through five we're going to take a look at edge of spider-verse one through four from 2022 we're going to take a look at all of the issues up through the mayday stuff on spider-verse unlimited figure out where it's going from there and then when the time comes we will ultimately take a look at spider-man but the reality is we have maybe two episodes left of this project yeah like i said it's the stuff that we're looking at towards the end none of it's my favorite but it really is leaving me with a feeling of like the concepts here have not still not hit their pinnacle so we will wrap up with like a i can't wait to return a little bit to these ideas when we've seen that great thing and we can do like a a a retrospective and an addition of like that project that comes up in the future that really speaks to what we've been trying to pull out of all of this and i can't wait to come back and take a look at these last legs with the same excitement you have for what the future could hold for these storylines where they go in the future as long as fans like us keep taking a look at them yeah and until we come back tk where can everybody find you online you can find me on this program on sunday late mornings early afternoons depending how long we go talking about different books each week from magic to x-men to avengers we go all over the place we're having so much fun we're doing it live please come uh watch us on youtube facebook we'll be adding more soon you know it's we're having so much fun and we'd love for you to join us otherwise you find me on twitter and instagram hive tumblr everywhere x nate x gray x you can find me many of those same places, but on the socials, you can check me out at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. You can get those amazing live videos as well as a host of incredible back material over at Hubs Plus Network on YouTube, where we stream live and put up extended videos of all of your favorite podcast content. You can always check out everything you need from the show at xsforpodcast.com, where we have an amazing amount of material available to you. And until we return, whether it's for for more spider adventures or live coverage of comics. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Keep Mr. Sinister the fuck out of my spider comics. And we'll see ya. Bye. 